Well, last week, we began by talking about how David, a teenager, stood against Goliath, the nine-foot-six-tall giant. And Goliath, we talked about how he was clad in armor from head to toe and how he was armed to the teeth. While David refused to wear King Saul's armor and went only with a staff and a sling and a shepherd's bag and five smooth stones. And we talked about how David, though he was not armored or armed in the, the fleshly armor of the world, that he actually stood much more firmly and was much better protected than Goliath, immeasurably better protected than Goliath. And the only one who fell that day was Goliath and then all of the armies of the Philistines. So David stood firm in the armor of God. But there was a time many years later when David was in battle again. But this time unarmed. And this time unarmed. It was the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. But David did not go out. He did not go out to that battle, but he faced a much more severe battle in his own home. The battle that he waged here was waged against the enemy of his soul, against his own traitorous flesh. The woman on the neighboring rooftop was beautiful to behold. And she bathed that morning. David saw the bait, but he didn't see the hook. In an instant, he went from attraction to preoccupation to provision as he sent for her. And you know what happened next. His sin led to deceit. It led to murder. It cost Uriah, the righteous husband and loyal soldier, his life. And it cost David the life of his own son. But it cost him much more than that as immorality and death dogged his heels as it entered into his offspring. And even much more than that, it cost David sweet fellowship with the Lord. Simon Peter too won a great victory. In response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this statement got David some of the highest praise that Jesus ever uttered during his earthly ministry. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you can read about this in Matthew 16. But then on the very heels of that, Peter suffered his second greatest defeat. As Jesus taught that he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and be handed over and killed, and on the third day rise from the grave, Jesus was rebuked by Peter. Peter rebuked the Son of God. And this earned Peter one of the greatest convictions and one of the greatest admonitions that Jesus ever, ever declared. He said, get behind me, Satan. Peter was setting his mind and his heart on the things of the world, not on the things of God. Peter lost his battle with Satan, and in that moment, became his pawn. But that was only Peter's second greatest defeat. 
There's another far greater defeat that he suffered three years later. When he, when he said, when Jesus said that one of the disciples would betray him, Peter stood in his own strength, in his own flesh, and he said, even if the rest of them betray you, Lord, I will not betray you. Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows, this night you will deny me three times. And so he denied knowing Jesus before a servant girl, denial one. He denied knowing Jesus to the bystanders with an oath, denial two. He denied knowing Jesus before a servant of the high priest, invoking a curse on himself, denial three. The rooster crowed and Peter wept bitterly. Just as Jesus had prophesied, three times Peter betrayed Jesus. Peter betrayed Jesus because Peter tried to stand in Peter's own strength. Brothers and sisters, we are at war. We are at war with an enemy who is far more powerful than us. And if we try to stand in our own strength, we will fall. We will fall. The only way to stand is to be strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. Your only hope is to stand in Christ. Your only hope is to, to remember the victory that He has won for you. The Son of God has achieved full and final victory for you on the cross. But until His return, the battle Rages. The battle is continuing to be fought all around you. You are in a war. Last week we saw that although Paul um, described each of these, these weapons in terms of Roman soldiers, what he really had in mind was the Lord's own armor as was described in the book of Isaiah. We talked about how the Lord has achieved victory for us in this armor and now he has given this armor to us you have received the armor of God you have received his own impenetrable armor you have received his own invincible weapons for this fight Last week we examined the, the first three pieces of armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and feet shod with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so the Apostle Paul, with orders from the captain of our salvation, is, is relaying to us instructions of what we need to do to stand in this battle. He instructed us in those first three items to, to fix them on our bodies to attach them to ourselves in preparation for the fight. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the next three pieces of armor, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. But with these three, the Apostle Paul uses a different verb. He doesn't tell you to put them on, but he tells you to take them up. Now, I don't want to press the metaphor here too far, but, but Roman soldiers would fasten those first three pieces of armor on. The, the belt of truth was fastened on. The breastplate of righteousness was fastened on. The, the gospel shoes or the, the, the sandals of their, uh, their sandals were fastened on. And now we take up these next three pieces. These last three, the, 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 the shield and the helmet and the sword would be would be by the soldier's side, and when the enemy approached, 
they would, they would quickly grab the shield, put on, grab the helmet, and grab the sword, and, and be ready for the attack. So this morning, let's learn how to obey the command of our Lord to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, so that we can stand in the fight. Paul begins here in verse 16 by, by saying, in all circumstances. Now this is, is translated in, in different ways in different versions, but, but I think this is actually good here. It's this, in all circumstances. In other words, to stand and in all at all times. And I think that fits the context. Though a Roman soldier might be able to, to lay down his helmet and his shield and his sword because the enemy was still a long way off, our enemy is never a long way off. Our enemy is always right there in our face. Now you might not see him, but he is always there. He's lying in wait. He's preparing an ambush. So that when you're not prepared, when you, you lay down the, the, the shield or, or leave the sword in the scabbard or, or leave your helmet lying around, then he will attack you. He will strike when you are the least prepared. You must be prepared at all times, in all circumstances, or you will not stand. The final piece the first piece, rather, of armor that Paul describes in this section is the shield of faith. Read all of verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, Roman infantry carried a, a, a large uh, oblong shield. It was about, about two and a half feet wide and about four feet high. And, and they, it, was, it was curved. Um, and so it would, be deflect, it would deflect arrows and other missiles from, from the front and a little bit from the sides as well. And that shield was, was made of, of wood. And the shield was then wrapped in canvas and then overlaid with leather. And its, its main use was to protect the soldier from, from missiles, especially from arrows that the enemies would be firing. And as we, we talked about with the kids, there were enemy archers would send thousands of arrows at the, at the infantry, at the Roman infantry. Now, as I said, although, although the Apostle Paul likely had in mind a Roman soldier, what he was really thinking about was, was the armor of the Lord. The armor of the Lord. And although there's, there's no direct references to uh, the shield of the Lord in Isaiah, the, the images of the Lord as a shield for his people are found throughout the Old Testament. Just a few examples are, are the Lord's word to Abraham in Genesis 15.1. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And it's there throughout Psalm 18. In verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. So the Lord is a shield. And the shield that the Apostle Paul describes here, he calls it the shield of faith. The shield of faith. 
Well, first we need to think about what faith is. And, and I think one of the best definitions of faith you can find in scriptures is found in, in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, 1, that the, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we'll see how hope is a big part of this faith. Faith is a major theme throughout the, the book of Ephesians. It's all through the letter. He describes faith as the means of our salvation in, in 2.8, that, that it's, the, it's the way that we lay hold of what Christ has done for us. It is, you have been saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8. And it, it is also all that Christ is doing to strengthen us. And how we lay hold of that, Paul prays in Ephesians 1.19 that the Ephesian Christians would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work in them. And in 3, 16 and 17, he prays that they would be strengthened with power in their inner being. And that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. This is the shield of faith. So we need to ask them, though, does, does the shield of faith then refer to objective faith? Or to the subjective faith of the believer? Is this, are we talking here about God's faithfulness, or are we talking about the Christian's faith? Well, I think if you remember last week, the answer is yes. It's both. It's God's faithfulness, and it's the Christian's faith. Both are correct. We have faith in God's faithfulness. Christ is our shield, and so our faith is our shield. And we need to be very careful here because there, there's some, some groups that, that put a lot of emphasis on faith. And a wrong emphasis on faith. They have a wrong emphasis of what faith really is. And, and there are people who have faith in faith. Believers in the so-called prosperity gospel have faith in faith. And I say the so-called prosperity gospel because... The prosperity gospel is not the gospel. It is not good news. And what, what believers in this, in this teach is that if you are not wealthy and healthy, if you are not successful in what you're doing, the problem is you don't have enough faith. So they drum up their faith, or they try to drum up their faith in order to achieve material, earthly benefits. This is not at all what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Our battle is spiritual. We're never told to set our minds on earthly benefits, but on spiritual victory. And the reality is that, we, that none of us have enough faith to achieve spiritual victory. That we need God's faith as a gift given to us. Faith is a gift. We need to rely on the Lord and His work in us in order to be able to stand. In the second half of, of verse 16, Paul tells you what the shield is for. It's to extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. As I described to the kids, enemy archers would, would wrap the, the heads of arrows in hemp and then dip them in pitch, light them on fire, and then fire them en masse against, against the, the Roman infantry wreaking havoc. Well, what the Roman soldiers would do is, as I said, their shields were made of wood, but 
but remember they were wrapped in canvas and le then leather, so they would soak their shields in water, and the, the leather and the canvas would absorb the water, so that when a flaming arrow hit the shield, it would be extinguished. That's the picture that, that's there for us, that, the, that the, the shield is able to extinguish all of those flaming arrows. In 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, we're warned, be sober, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your, by your brothers throughout the world. And so, in this context, you resist Satan. You stand firm against Satan by taking up the shield of faith. By looking to Christ in faith. Now you must take up the shield of faith in order to extinguish all of the darts of the evil one. He is letting fly with all kinds of, of flaming arrows. Arrows that are, are tailored, made to target your weaknesses. And spread the fire of sin raging through the ranks. Arrows of lust and pride and wilderness and gossip and slander and doubt and fear and anger and error and laziness and relaxation and rebellion and selfishness. You get the picture. All of these arrows are targeting you. As we've seen repeatedly, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, but he knows you. He's been watching you for a long time. And he knows human nature. He's been at this for thousands of years. And he knows exactly where and when to fire his arrows in order to try to take you down. So we need to remember that, that he will use our own flesh. And he will, use our, he will use other sinners. Like in, in, in Psalm 11 too, The wicked bend the bow, they have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So whether it's, it's from your own flesh or whether it's from other people, the enemy is active and trying to destroy you. But this leads then to another essential detail. Roman legions did not stand alone in the face of battle. They stood shoulder to shoulder. When they were commanded to, to stand firm, they would, they would close ranks in a formation called a testudo, which is Latin for tortoise. You've probably seen this in pictures or, or in movies. The front ranks would hold their shields up, and then the rows behind would, would hold the shields over their heads so that the entire, the, the entire group, was the entire formation was protected from those flaming arrows. So that the commanding officer would, would yell out, Testudo, and then they would all automatically put their shields in that formation. And so the whole group would be protected. What would happen if, if one of those soldiers would, would drop his shield or to lay down his shield? And the other soldiers around him were also at risk. Think about what happens if a flaming arrow or several flaming arrows are able to, to break through that, that hole in the formation. The whole thing goes into disarray. 
there's a reminder here that, that when you stand against Satan and against his schemes, you do not stand alone. You stand shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And their shield of faith protects you, and your shield of faith protects them. So don't ever think that, that, that when you falter, don't ever think that, that when you submit to sin, when you get lazy about the shield of faith, that, that you are only injuring yourself. You're putting all of those around you at risk as well. We need to stand, we need to stand together. So we need to, to take heart. We need to take heart because though, though we have a powerful enemy, a formidable foe who is fighting against us with, with everything he's got, he doesn't ever rest from his, his assault against us. But we need to remember that we have been given the implements. We've been given the armor as we'll see the weapons to be able to fight against him to stand firm against what he is doing. So we can take heart because greater, for, we can take heart because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. 1 John 5, 4. And as the Puritan William Gurnall declared in the Christian in Complete Armor, he said, if all the devil's wits and wiles will not serve to overcome, serve him to overcome one single soldier in Christ's camp, much less will he ever ruin the whole army. So brothers and sisters, you might fall. There might be times that, that in your fall that, that others around you are injured, but final victory has been assured. You will gain final victory, for Christ has already won the battle. And he's given you his shield of faith with which to stand firm. Well, the next piece of armor that Paul talks about here is that the helmet of salvation. In verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation. He says, take it up, pick it up, put it on your head. Roman helmet is called the Galia. It's, it was usually made of, of bronze, and it had chin, uh, hinged cheek protectors, and and it would and sometimes it would have a, a crest on the top. and And the Roman soldier that that would would stand always in, with the armor fastened, but then when the enemy approached, he would don the helmet and be ready for the attack. But that Roman soldier, as we talked about earlier, would, would only do that when he sensed imminent danger. But we need to understand that we are always in imminent danger. This enemy is always seeking to destroy us. And again, this is a principle that, that Paul uh, pulls from Isaiah 59.17. He says that the Lord puts on the helmet of salvation as he fights for his people. And now the Lord's helmet is given to us. And in, in 6, 7, Ephesians 6.17 is literally the helmet which is salvation. But this helmet is salvation. Like David says in, in Psalm 140 verse 7, he says, O oh Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation. He says, you have covered my head in the day of battle. The Lord has covered our head in the day of battle with the helmet of salvation. And so when we think of salvation, there's really two main things that, that we think about here. 
as, as Francis Fox describes, it, it involves God's gift of protection uh, against the punishment of sin, and it's also God's gift of, of protection against the power of sin. So it's protection against the punishment of sin. Salvation is also protection against the power of sin. But like we ask for the shield of faith, is this objective salvation? Or is this our conscious possession of our salvation? Again, it's both. It's both. It, it's the salvation that has been achieved for us in Christ. And it's also our calling it to mind. And, and I think that's, it's helpful here that, to think about the helmet as something you wear on your head. So you're calling the salvation that has been achieved for you into your own mind. You are preaching this to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to the tenses of salvation. The tenses of salvation. He says that, that, that there is a past tense that we are already saved. It says that we are also, there's also a present tense, that we are being saved. And there is also a future tense, that we will be saved. And, and again, here, this is all three of these are in mind. Earlier in, in Ephesians, Paul emphasized all that God has done for us in, in our salvation, making us alive with Christ, raising us up with Christ seating us with Him in the heavenly places. That, that is all done in the past for us and has an enduring effect for all eternity. But there's also a focus on the present, that, that we are rescued from death, Paul says in Ephesians 2, and from wrath and from bondage, and we're transferred into God's kingdom. But there's a future component of our salvation too. First Thessalonians 8 and 9, Paul says that we are to put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation, for God has destined us for wrath, sorry, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a future component of your salvation, a confidence of what the Lord will do for you. And so what Paul is telling us to do is telling us to receive salvation as those who have already received salvation as those who will receive salvation in the future. It's a call for us to stand firm in what we have received and what we will receive. It's the hope of what you will receive because of what you have already received. It's the hope of a future salvation because of the salvation that has already been accomplished for you in Christ. Past, present, and future salvation. So are you conscious? Are you conscious of the salvation that has been accomplished for you in Christ? Is your hope in Christ and all that He has done and is doing and will do for you? This is what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. You can be confident of the outcome. Because as, as P.T. O'Brien said, as they appropriate, as Christians appropriate the salvation more fully and live more in the light of their status in Christ, they have every reason to be confident in the face of battle. Your enemy seeks to destroy you, but he cannot take away your salvation. The salvation that has been achieved 
for you in Christ, the salvation that you have received in Christ. No one can ever take that from you. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is assured because Christ has given it to you. And so you need to remind yourself of that. And metaphorically putting on the helmet of salvation. The final piece of armor that we're going to look at this morning is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Now the sword of the Spirit is different from the rest of the armor that we've looked at. Because it, it well first of all, technically it's not really a piece of armor, it's, it's a weapon. It's a weapon, it's, and it, it's, there is a defensive aspect of it, but it's also offensive. The sword has a, has a defensive and also an offensive use to it. The Roman infantry carried a short-handled sword that was called a gladius. Now that's where the word gladiator comes from, from this, this short sword. It was a, a double-edged sword about, about two inches wide and about two feet long, a short sword. And it was used to slash and to thrust against enemies in, in close quarters, in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so there was that offensive aspect, but it's also defensive because that sword was also used to parry and to fend off sword thrusts from the enemy. So it's offensive and defensive. We're going to focus here on the for a moment here on the, the offensive aspects, that it's not just to fend off, but also to attack, to counterattack. All the while, as the metaphor is standing firm, so this is not an advancing army, but this is an army who, when the enemy comes close, there's a counterattack with the sword of the Spirit. Last week we saw how Paul used the metaphor of Isaiah 11.5, of the Messiah fighting armed with righteousness, that should be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Well, here that in, this, in this section as well, Paul seems to be drawing from Isaiah 11.2. In verse 4, he says, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This image is also clear in Isaiah 49.2, where the Messiah is speaking. He says that he made my mouth like a sharp sword. The shadow of his hand he hid me, he made me a polished arrow in his quiver, he hid me away. And these are echoed in Revelation 19.15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And what do you see about the weaponry that's described in, in those passages? It comes from the mouth. It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And by the sword of the Spirit, we wield the Word of God that has been given to us in Christ, the incarnate Word of God. Again, the Messiah's weaponry is given to us in the fight. You have been given the sword of the Spirit. You've been given the Word of God. Now, notably, that the sword of the Spirit hung in a, in, when it wasn't in use, it, it hung in a scabbard that was attached to what? The belt 
in this sense, the belt of truth. I think it's fitting that the, that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, would be, would be fitted to the belt of truth. But where we talked last week about the belt of truth being the truth of who God is, of God's righteous character, this time it's, it's, it was, it's, and it's also the truth of, um, we also talked about last week, the, the truth of the Gospel. Here it's, it's the whole Word of God. It's, it's standing firm, wielding the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the whole Word of God. And it's called the sword of the Spirit because, because He, the Holy Spirit, is the source of the Word of God. John 14, 17 says that the, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And so in the inspiration of Scripture, the Holy Spirit worked into, in the hearts of men so that every single word of the original manuscripts was recorded exactly how God intended. We always saw this in Ephesians 3, in Ephesians 3 verses 4 and 5, of how the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Holy Spirit revealing the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts and the individual personalities of those godly men so that every single word that they wrote down was inspired, was inerrant, was authoritative and sufficient for believers. And that is the word that you hold when you hold your Bible in your hand. You hold the sword of the Spirit in your hand. You have received the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Word of God is, is, not, is not to be used like some magical incantation against the devil. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, when you... When you rightly understand and rightly apply the Word of God, you are fighting against Satan and against his enemies, against his allies. The Word of God is a weapon of mass destruction against Satan and all of the enemies of the Church of God. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, we're told that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so this is an offensive weapon against those who, who speak things against God and against His truth. But in this sense, it's also defensive, because when they speak these things against you, you reply with the Word of God. And so we, do, we don't stand and we don't use philosophy to stand against philosophy. We don't use science to stand against the, the science of the world. We use the Word of God 
Use the word of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones likens this. He said, it's, it's a trying to stand in, in the world's, using the, the, the world's means, is like trying to stand in Saul's armor. You will not stand. We stand using the word of God. So the, the, the Bible, the word of God, is a weapon of mass destruction against Satan and, and, and the enemies of God in this church it, it, because it's, it's a weapon of mass construction as the, the, the church of God is built on the word of God, Ephesians 2.19. It, it's a weapon of mass salvation as it produces faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God, Romans 10.17. It, it's a weapon of mass sanctification as it enables you to go to war against your flesh. The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. And so all of this, all of this is by the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of these things are used to fend off the attacks of the devil and also used to counterattack, so that the kingdom of God advances through the church. But I wonder if for you is the sword of the spirit rusting in its scabbard? Is the, the sword of the spirit, is the word of God your, your, your daily bread? After all, this is the very means that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted by, by Satan in the wilderness. Every time Satan came against Jesus, and what did Satan use? He used half-truths of the word of God. And what did, what did our Lord respond with? It is written. It is written. And so when Satan tempted Jesus to, when he was hungry to, to take up stones and make them bread, Jesus responded, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, O oh God. Deuteronomy 8.3. Every time he said, it is written, and then applied God's word in its proper context to fend off the attacks of the enemy until the enemy left him. And so we need, all of us, we need to, to keep the sword of the Spirit sharp in our hearts, in our minds. We need to daily meditate on the Word of God. We need to be like David who said in Psalm 119 verse 11, that I have hidden your word in my heart that it might not sin against you. This is the only piece of, of offensive weaponry that, that we have. It's the Word of God. And so you need to know the Word of God. You need to be mighty in the Word of God. You need to be able to, to know what the Word of God teaches in its proper context so that, that when you are, are speaking with unbelievers or when you're being tempted with sin, that you can respond with the Word of God, that you can preach the Word of God back against, against the enemies of God, against your enemies. So when you think about those ways that you are tempted, the ways, those, those go-to areas that, where the enemy is constantly coming attack, against you to attack you, you need to hide God's word in your heart in those very areas. So you can preach the truth to yourself. 
so that you can overcome, so that you can stand firm. You know, earlier I spoke of Peter and his betrayal of the Lord three times on that night. But I think Peter betrayed Jesus a fourth time on that night as well. When he took his own sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Peter was trying to stand in that moment, not just in his own strength, but in his own weaponry. Instead of, of using the word of God, instead of relying on Christ, now you are at war. Do not lay down your armor for a second. There is no furlough in this war. There is no demilitarized zone. There is no ceasefire. The only peace that can be found is the peace that we can receive through the gospel of peace. The only victory is Christ's. And only at his return will there be final peace. Now sometimes you don't feel like fighting. Sometimes you, you don't feel like putting on the armor of God. Sometimes you feel like conceding. I know what that feels like. But you need to remember in whose strength you need to stand. You need to remember that who it is that you are fighting against is the devil, God's enemy, and your enemy, the enemy of your soul. And so when you concede ground to him, you are conceding ground to Satan. And so you need to think about each of these, excuse me, these pieces of armor that we've talked about over the past two weeks. You need to, to consciously think about what it means to, to put on the, the, the belt of truth, what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes of the, the, the preparation of the gospel of peace, what it means to take up the shield of faith, what it means to put on the helmet, or take up the, the helmet of salvation, what it means to take up the sword of the Spirit. Think through those things. Pray through those things. We're going to talk about prayer next week. This is your only hope if you are going to stand. As Martin Luther wrote in, in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he said, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. There was a time when David stood. There was a time when David fell. But David did not fall finally and completely because the victory had been achieved for him in Christ. There was a time when Peter stood, and there was a time when Peter fell, but he did not fully and finally fall because of the victory that had been achieved for him in Christ, because Christ was interceding for him. Satan desired to, to have Peter, who would sift him like wheat. But, Peter's, but Peter was prayed for by Jesus. Jesus was interceding for Peter, and Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus won the victory for Peter, and Jesus won the victory for you. 
God made a covenant with David that will stand. Peter was restored. Friends, you may have been beaten. You may have lost a battle. But if you are in Christ, you will not lose completely because the battle has already been won for you. And so by God's grace and the strength that He provides, stand in the armor that He has provided. But if you are here this morning as an unbeliever, if you are here this morning as an enemy of Christ, you might not feel like you're at war, but you are. You're at war with Christ. You're at war with Christ's people. And you will find Satan, a faithless friend. You might not realize it, but his sights are set on you. His weapons are trained against you. And he will destroy you unless you flee to Christ. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. And stand with Christ. In the victory that he has provided. Let's pray.